0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Night and Day by Virginia Woolf. Chapter three Denham had accused Catherine Hillbury of belonging to one of the most distinguished families in England, and if any one will take the trouble to consult Mr. Galton's hereditary genius, he will find that this assertion is not far from the truth the allardyces the hillberries the millingtons and the otways seem to prove that intellect is a possession which can be tossed from one member of a certain group to another almost indefinitely and with apparent certainty that the brilliant gift will be safely caught and held by nine out of ten of the privileged race they had been conspicuous judges and admirals lawyers and servants of the State, for some years before the richness of the soil culminated in the rarest flower that any family can boast, a great writer, a poet eminent among the poets of England, a Richard Allardyce. Having produced him, they produced once more the amazing virtues of their race, by proceeding unconcernedly again with their usual task of breeding distinguished men. They had sailed with Sir John Franklin to the North Pole, and ridden with Havelock to the relief of Lucknow and when they were not lighthouses firmly based on the rock for the guidance of their generation they were steady serviceable candles illuminating the ordinary chambers of daily life whatever profession you looked at there was a warburton or an allardyce a millington or a hillberry somewhere in authority and prominence it may be said indeed that english society being what it is no very great merit is required once you bear a well-known name to put you into a position where it is easier on the whole to be eminent than obscure. And if this is true of the sons, even the daughters, even in the nineteenth century, are apt to become people of importance, philanthropists and educationalists if they are spinsters, and the wives of distinguished men if they marry. It is true that there were several lamentable exceptions to this rule in the Allardyce group, which seems to indicate that the cadets of such houses go more rapidly to the bad than the children of ordinary fathers and mothers, as if it were somehow a relief to them. But on the whole, in these first years of the twentieth century, the Allardyces and their relations were keeping their heads well above water. One finds them at the tops of professions, with letters after their names. They sit in luxurious public offices, with private secretaries attached to them. They write solid books in dark covers, issued by the presses of the two great universities. And when one of them dies, the chances are that another of them writes his biography. Now the source of this nobility was, of course, the poet. And his immediate descendants, therefore, were invested with greater luster than the collateral branches. Mrs. Hillbury, in virtue of her position as the only child of the poet, was spiritually the head of the family and Catherine, her daughter, had some superior rank among all the cousins and connections, the more so because she was an only child. The Allardyces had married and intermarried, and their offspring were generally profuse, and had a way of meeting regularly in each other's houses for meals and family celebrations, which had acquired a semi-sacred character, and were as regularly observed as days of feasting and fasting in the church. In times gone by, Mrs. Hilbury had known all the poets, all the novelists, all the beautiful women and distinguished men of her time. These being now either dead or secluded in their infirm glory, she made her house a meeting place for her own relations, to whom she would lament the passing of the great days of the nineteenth century, when every department of letters and art was represented in England by two or three illustrious names. "'Where are their successors?' she would ask. And the absence of any poet or painter or novelist of the true calibre at the present day was a text upon which she liked to ruminate in a sunset mood of benignant reminiscence which it would have been hard to disturb had there been need. But she was far from visiting their inferiority upon the younger generation. She welcomed them very heartily to her house, told them her stories, gave them sovereigns and ices and good advice, and weaved round them romances which had generally no likeness to the truth the quality of her birth oozed into catherine's consciousness from a dozen different sources as soon as she was able to perceive anything above her nursery fireplace hung a photograph of her grandfather's tomb in poet's corner and she was told in one of those moments of grown-up confidence which are so tremendously impressive to the child's mind that he was buried there because he was a good and great man Later, on an anniversary, she was taken by her mother through the fog in a hansom cab and given a large bunch of bright, sweet scented flowers to lay upon his tomb. The candles in the church, the singing, and the booming of the organ were all, she thought, in his honor. Again and again she was brought down into the drawing room to receive the blessing of some awful distinguished old man, who sat, even to her childish eye, somewhat apart, all gathered together and clutching a stick unlike an ordinary visitor in her father's own armchair and her father himself was there unlike himself too a little excited and very polite these formidable old creatures used to take her in their arms look very keenly in her eyes and then to bless her and tell her that she must mind and be a good girl or detect a look in her face something like richard's as a small boy that drew down upon her her mother's fervent embrace and she was sent back to the nursery very proud and with a mysterious sense of an important and unexplained state of things, which time by degrees unveiled to her. There were always visitors, uncles and aunts and cousins from India, to be reverenced for their relationship alone, and others of the solitary and formidable class, whom she was enjoined by her parents to remember all your life. By these means, and from hearing constant talk of great men and their works, her earliest conceptions of the world included an august circle of beings to whom she gave the names of shakespeare milton wordsworth shelley and so on who were for some reason much more nearly akin to the hillberries than to other people they made a kind of boundary to her vision of life and played a considerable part in determining her scale of good and bad in her own small affairs her descent from one of these gods was no surprise to her but matter for satisfaction, until, as the years wore on, the privileges of her lot were taken for granted, and certain drawbacks made themselves very manifest. Perhaps it is a little depressing to inherit not lands, but an example of intellectual and spiritual virtue. Perhaps the conclusiveness of a great ancestor is a little discouraging to those who run the risk of comparison with him. It seems as if, having flowered so splendidly, nothing now remained possible but a steady growth of good green-stalk and leaf. For these reasons, and for others, Catherine had her moments of despondency. The glorious past, in which men and women grew to unexampled size, intruded too much upon the present, and dwarfed it too consistently to be altogether encouraging to one forced to make her experiment in living when the great age was dead. She was drawn to dwell upon these matters more than was natural in the first place owing to her mother's absorption in them, and in the second, because a great part of her time was spent in imagination with the dead, since she was helping her mother to produce a life of the great poet. When Catherine was seventeen or eighteen, that is to say some ten years ago, her mother had enthusiastically announced that now, with a daughter to help her, the biography would soon be published. Notices to this effect found their way into the literary papers, and for some time catherine worked with a sense of great pride and achievement lately however it had seemed to her that they were making no way at all and this was the more tantalizing because no one with the ghost of a literary temperament could doubt but that they had materials for one of the greatest biographies that has ever been written shelves and boxes bulged with the precious stuff the most private lives of the most interesting people lay furled in yellow bundles of close-written manuscript in addition to this mrs hillbury had in her own head as bright a vision of that time as now remained to the living and could give those flashes and thrills to the old words which gave them almost the substance of flesh she had no difficulty in writing and covered a page every morning as instinctively as a thrush sings but nevertheless with all this to urge and inspire and the most devout intention to accomplish the work the book still remained unwritten Papers accumulated without much furthering their task, and in dull moments Catherine had her doubts whether they would ever produce anything at all fit to lay before the public. Where did the difficulty lie? Not in their materials, alas, nor in their ambitions, but in something more profound, in her own inaptitude, and above all in her mother's temperament. Catherine would calculate that she had never known her to write for more than ten minutes at a time. Ideas came to her chiefly when she was in motion. She liked to perambulate the room with a duster in her hand, with which she stopped to polish the backs of already lustrous books, musing and romancing as she did so. Suddenly the right phrase or the penetrating point of view would suggest itself, and she would drop her duster and write ecstatically for a few breathless moments, and then the mood would pass away, and the duster would be sought for, and the old books polished again. These spells of inspiration never burnt steadily, but flickered over the gigantic mass of the subject as capriciously as the will of the wisp, lighting now on this point, now on that. It was as much as Catherine could do to keep the pages of her mother's manuscript in order, but to sort them so that the sixteenth year of Richard Allardyce's life succeeded the fifteenth was beyond her skill. And yet they were so brilliant, these paragraphs, so nobly phrased, so lightning like in their illumination that the dead seemed to crowd the very room read continuously, they produced a sort of vertigo and set her asking herself in despair what on earth was she to do with them. Her mother refused also to face the radical questions of what to leave in and what to leave out. She could not decide how far the public was to be told the truth about the poet's separation from his wife. She drafted passages to suit either case and then liked each so well. That she could not decide upon the rejection of either. But the book must be written. It was a duty that they owed the world, and to Catherine, at least, it meant more than that, for if they could not between them get this one book accomplished, they had no right to their privileged position. Their increment became yearly more and more unearned. Besides, it must be established indisputably that her grandfather was a very great man." By the time she was twenty-seven, these thoughts had become very familiar to her. They trod their way through her mind as she sat opposite her mother of a morning at a table heaped with bundles of old letters, and well supplied with pencils, scissors, bottles of gum, India-rubber bands, large envelopes, and other appliances for the manufacture of books. Shortly before Ralph Denham's visit, Catherine had resolved to try the effect of strict rules upon her mother's habits of literary composition. They were to be seated at their tables every morning at ten o'clock, with a clean swept morning of empty secluded hours before them. They were to keep their eyes fast upon the paper, and nothing was to tempt them to speech, save at the stroke of the hour when ten minutes for relaxation were to be allowed them. If these rules were observed for a year, she made out on a sheet of paper that the completion of the book was certain, and she laid her scheme before her mother with a feeling that much of the task was already accomplished. Mrs. Hillbury examined the sheet of paper very carefully. Then she clapped her hands and exclaimed enthusiastically, "'Well done, Catherine! What a wonderful head for business you've got! Now I shall keep this before me, and every day I shall make a little mark in my pocket-book. And on the last day of all, let me think, what shall we do to celebrate the last day of all? If it weren't the winter, we could take a jaunt to Italy. They say Switzerland's very lovely in the snow, except for the cold.' But, as you say, the great thing is to finish the book. Now let me see. When they inspected her manuscripts, which Catherine had put in order, they found a state of things well calculated to dash their spirits, if they had not just resolved on reform. They found, to begin with, a great variety of very imposing paragraphs, with which the biography was to open. Many of these, it is true, were unfinished, and resembled triumphal arches standing upon one leg. But. As Mrs Hillbury observed, they could be patched up in ten minutes, if she gave her mind to it. Next, there was an account of the ancient home of the Allardyces, or rather of Spring in Suffolk, which was very beautifully written, although not essential to the story. However, Catherine had put together a string of names and dates, so that the poet was capably brought into the world, and his ninth year was reached without further mishap. After that, mrs Hilbury wished, for sentimental reasons, to introduce the recollections of a very fluent old lady who had been brought up in the same village, but these, Catherine decided, must go. It might be advisable to introduce here a sketch of contemporary poetry contributed by mr Hilbury, and thus terse and learned and altogether out of keeping with the rest, but mrs Hilbury was of the opinion that it was too bare, and made one feel altogether like a good little girl in a lecture room, which was not at all in keeping with her father it was put on one side. Now came the period of his early manhood, when various affairs of the heart must either be concealed or revealed. Here again Mrs. Hilbury was of two minds, and a thick packet of manuscript was shelved for further consideration. Several years were now altogether omitted, because Mrs. Hilbury had found something distasteful to her in that period, and had preferred to dwell upon her own recollections as a child. After this, it seemed to Catherine, that the book became a wild dance of will-o'-the-wisps, without form or continuity, without coherence, even, or any attempt to make a narrative. Here were twenty pages upon her grandfather's taste in hats, an essay upon contemporary China, a long account of a summer day's expedition into the country, when they had missed their train, together with fragmentary visions of all sorts of famous men and women, which seemed to be partly imaginary and partly authentic. There were, moreover, thousands of letters, and a mass of faithful recollections contributed by old friends, which had grown yellow now in their envelopes, but must be placed somewhere, or their feelings would be hurt. So many volumes had been written about the poet since his death, that she had also to dispose of a great number of misstatements, which involved minute researches and much correspondence. Sometimes Catherine brooded, half-crushed, among her papers, Sometimes she felt that it was necessary for her very existence that she should free herself from the past. At others, that the past had completely displaced the present, which, when one resumed life after a mourning among the dead, proved to be of an utterly thin and inferior composition. The worst of it was that she had no aptitude for literature. She did not like phrases. She had even some natural antipathy to that process of self-examination That perpetual effort to understand one's own feeling and express it beautifully, fitly, or energetically in language, which constituted so great a part of her mother's existence. She was, on the contrary, inclined to be silent. She shrank from expressing herself even in talk, let alone in writing. As this disposition was highly convenient in a family much given to the manufacture of phrases, and seemed to argue a corresponding capacity for action. She was, from her childhood even, put in charge of household affairs. She had the reputation, which nothing in her manner contradicted, of being the most practical of people. Ordering meals, directing servants, paying bills, and so contriving that every clock ticked more or less accurately in time, and a number of vases were always full of fresh flowers, was supposed to be a natural endowment of hers. And, indeed, Mrs. Hilbury often observed that it was poetry the wrong side out. From a very early age, too, she had to exert herself in another capacity. She had to counsel and help and generally sustain her mother. Mrs. Hilbury would have been perfectly well able to sustain herself if the world had been what the world is not. She was beautifully adapted for life in another planet, but the natural genius she had for conducting affairs there was of no real use to her here. Her watch, for example, was a constant source of surprise to her, and at the age of sixty-five she was still amazed at the ascendancy which rules and reasons exerted over the lives of other people. She had never learnt her lesson, and had constantly to be punished for her ignorance. But as that ignorance was combined with a fine natural insight, which saw deep whenever it saw at all, it was not possible to write Mrs. Hilbury off among the dunces. On the contrary, she had a way of seeming the wisest person in the room. But on the whole, she found it very necessary to seek support in her daughter. Catherine, thus, was a member of a very great profession which has as yet no title and very little recognition, although the labor of mill and factory is, perhaps, no more severe and the results of less benefit to the world. She lived at home. She did it very well, too. Anyone coming to the house in Cheyenne Walk felt that here was an orderly place, shapely, controlled a place where life had been trained to show to the best advantage, and, though composed of different elements, made to appear harmonious and with a character of its own. Perhaps it was the chief triumph of Catherine's art that Mrs. Hillbury's character predominated. She and Mr. Hillbury appeared to be a rich background for her mother's more striking qualities. Silence being thus both natural to her and imposed upon her, the only other remark that her mother's friends were in the habit of making about it was that it was neither a stupid silence nor an indifferent silence but to what quality it owed its character since character of some sort it had no one troubled themselves to inquire it was understood that she was helping her mother to produce a great book she was known to manage the household she was certainly beautiful that accounted for her satisfactorily but it would have been a surprise Not only to other people, but to Catherine herself, if some magic watch could have taken count of the moments spent in an entirely different occupation from her ostensible one. Sitting with faded papers before her, she took part in a series of scenes such as the taming of wild ponies upon the American prairies, or the conduct of a vast ship in a hurricane round a black promontory of rock, or in others more peaceful, but marked by her complete emancipation from her present surroundings. And, needless to say, by her surpassing ability in her new vocation. When she was rid of the pretense of paper and pen, phrase making and biography, she turned her attention in a more legitimate direction, though strangely enough, she would rather have confessed her wildest dreams of hurricane and prairie than the fact that, upstairs, alone in her room, she rose early in the morning or sat up late at night to work at mathematics. No force on earth would have made her confess that her actions when thus engaged were furtive and secretive like those of some nocturnal animal steps had only to sound on the staircase and she slipped her paper between the leaves of a great greek dictionary which she had purloined from her father's room for this purpose it was only at night indeed that she felt secure enough from surprise to concentrate her mind to the utmost Perhaps the unwomanly nature of the science made her instinctively wish to conceal her love of it, but the more profound reason was that in her mind mathematics were directly opposed to literature. She would not have cared to confess how infinitely she preferred the exactitude, the star-like impersonality of figures to the confusion, agitation, and vagueness of the finest prose. There was something a little unseemly in thus opposing the tradition of her family, something that made her feel wrong headed and thus more than ever disposed to shut her desires away from view and cherish them with extraordinary fondness again and again she was thinking of some problem when she should have been thinking of her grandfather waking from these trances she would see that her mother too had lapsed into some dream almost as visionary as her own for the people who played their parts in it had long been numbered among the dead but seeing her own state mirrored in her mother's face catherine would shake herself awake with a sense of irritation her mother was the last person she wished to resemble much though she admired her her common sense would assert itself almost brutally and mrs Hilbury, looking at her with her odd sidelong glance that was half malicious and half tender would liken her to your wicked old uncle judge peter who used to be heard delivering sentence of death in the bathroom thank heaven catherine i've not a drop of him in me End of chapter 3